So, my dear faithful, I am very, very happy to be amongst you and to, to share with you some thoughts. In fact, nothing new, nothing new, no. But I think, uh, well, I hope that it will be also for you, um, an interesting approach on a, on a question which is for us, so to say, already well known. And I don't need to make a lot of uh, demonstration to say that there is a terrible crisis in the church. I don't need to because you just need to just look, open your eyes, look around and you will see an incredible situation. Now, I'm going to propose to you an approach which will show the same, but from a rather, uh, I must say, special angle. And what is it? It is two, well, in fact, two statements, three, but two popes, recent pope, who have spoken about, we could say, the situation of the church, it is true, and also because everybody understands that there is and there must be a link between the council, Council Vatican II, and the present situation. So, we will start with the just late departed Pope Benedict. Pope Benedict at least two times spoke about, about the situation of the church. During his pontificate, I take only the pontificate, I don't go before you could have you have dramatic books like The Salt of the Earth, where at the time Cardinal Ratzinger described the situation of the future of the church as the structure we know now will disappear. And there will remain only little bits and here and there, little islands, little oases, and from there, the church will grow again. That's why even the title, the salt of the earth. So very dramatic description of the situation. I must tell you that when I read that, I really thought he has lost hope, has lost hope in the church. No, it cannot be. But well, when you look now where we are, I tell you, we are really close to that situation described in that book. But so, two texts. One is a very elaborate, so very structured, very reflected. It's a, it's a real, we could say, conference. It was Benedict talking to the Curia just before Christmas for the exchange of the vows of Christmas. It was on the 22nd of December, 2005, so the first year of his pontificate. 
very long. I cannot even comment the whole thing because it would be it would be more than one conference. It is it is very rich, very rich, very interesting. You know, you have to know that Pope Benedict was really um, a man of thinking. He was con continuously thinking. And even if we, we certainly do disagree on his um, theological approach, which was even labeled by his professors, one of his professors as modernist, nevertheless, whenever it comes to the description of the situation, you find someone which is who wants to be very accurate and very precise. So his description of situation are always very precious, precious. The explanation then, because let's say of this background, um, we could say philosophical and theological background. Well, you will see. You will see. So we start with this text. Then I will give you a second text or an excerpt of the second text, which is, so this, this first text is the very beginning. The other one is the very end. Very few, few, few days before his resignation. He had already announced his resignation, and that was the farewell to the Roman clergy. This text is not a conference, he's speaking from his heart, he's describing how he was present and how he received and experienced the council. And then I will, the quote I will give you is a little note which he gave, a little remark which he gave during this, this talk on, you will see, it's a very, very interesting, um, once again, vision, uh, appreciation of the situation. So that's, I may say, the first part, or two parts already, and the last part, the next part, will be the present Pope. The present Pope, and that's uh, recent, that this, this um, well, year 2022, it was, there was a meeting of the Jesuit responsibles of media in Europe with Pope Francis. And uh, they were allowed, well, it was in fact, I think, two or three days meeting, but the first encounter where you have these Jesuits, or even, let's say, laymen, ask to the Pope questions, and the Pope answers. And this was published by the editor of the Civilta Cattolica, which is really the, we may say, the most renowned Jesuit publication in Rome. And so Father Spadaro published that, this, um, this talk. And again, in this talk, there is a question about the council. Once again, all what we focus here is the question of the council and the situation of the church. 
So we start now with Cardinal, or at the time already, Benedict. What has been the result of the council? It's a quote. Was it well received? What in the acceptance of the council was good and what was inadequate or mistaken? What still remains to be done? No one can deny that in vast areas of the church, the implementation of the council has been somehow what difficult. Even without wishing to apply to what occurred in these years, the description that St. Basil, the great doctor of the church, made of the church situation of the Council of Nicaea, he compares her situation to a naval battle in the darkness of the storm, saying, amongst other things, the raucous shouting of those who through disagreement rise up against one another, the incomprehensible chatter, the confused din of ininterpreted clamoring has now filled almost the whole of the church, falsifying through excess of failure the right doctrine of the faith. We do not want to apply precisely this dramatic description to the situation of the post-conciliar period, yet something from all that occurred is nevertheless reflected in it. The question arises, why has the implementation of the Council in large part of the Church thus far been so difficult? You can see this is an understatement from the head of the church who really prudently uses words, but under these words, he just say that the situation is dramatic. And now the explanation, why, why is it so? Well, it all depends on the correct interpretation of the council. Or as we would say today, it is proper hermeneutics, the correct key to its interpretation and application. The problems in its implementation arose from the fact that two contrary hermeneutics came face to face and quarreled with each other. One called confusion, the other, silently, but more and more visibly, bore and is bearing fruit. On the one hand, there is an interpretation that I would call a hermetic of discontinuity and rapture. It has frequently wailed itself the sympathy of the mass media and also one trend of modern theology. You understand that what you say, discontinuity or rupture, that means these people start to say something which is contrary, opposed to what the church has always taught. Under these nice little words, even discontinuity, you have that, 
Rupture means it's broken. Um, remember, maybe, that in the beginning of the 90s, there was an enormous rebellion of the theologian in Europe. And you had two declarations. One is called the Charter of Cologne, of Köln. Over 500 theology professors and theologians in Europe signed that declaration. And then, the, at that moment, prefect of the Congregation of the Faith, Cardinal Ratzinger, made a little description of this called modern theology. There were three points. The first point was the negation of the creation, which is now replaced by evolution. So, our Lord is no longer, well, God is no longer creator. The church, the world is just evolving by evolution. Point two, our Lord Jesus Christ is not God. If there is no creator, there is no God. And so our Lord cannot be God. What is he then? Well, he is the first revolutionary but his revolution ended badly because it terminated on the cross. And third point described by the then Cardinal Ratzinger about this modern theology, the end of times. And he says, there is no hell, no purgatory, and not no heaven. Heaven is in earth, on earth. It's the future. That's the description of the modern Catholic, or so-called, or pretendedly Catholic theologians, and that's in the beginning of the 90s, by the prefect of the Congregation of the Faith, someone who is very well placed to be able to make that description. And remember, over 500 theologians university professors teaching the theology in the Catholic universities described in what I've just showed you. Of course, from these people, you cannot expect anything else than what here is described as an interpretation of discontinuity and rupture, modern theology. Now, Pope Benedict says that there is another one, what he called the hermeneutic of reform, of renewal, in the continuity of the one subject church. Very curious expression, but that's of his, which the Lord has given to us. She is a subject which increases in time and develops, yet always remaining the same, the one subject of the journeying people of God. You see this expression there, and you say, what does he want to say with these words? That's, that's really the typical uh, dear Pope Benedict and his, his, yeah, his theology. But he wants to be conservative, understand well. So we disagree, but himself disagrees with people who go much further. I try to, to see that. Well, we will continue a little bit. Now he will describe or first 
this discontinuity, the rupture. The hermeneutic of discontinuity risks ending in a split between the pre-conciliar church and the post-conciliar church. In other words, with the church as it was, has always been, till the council and after. And he says, this, this theory, this stream, stream main, well, which is one of the main streams in the church, has the very great risk to be, and to go away of what the church has always been. It asserts that the text of the council as such do not express the true spirit of the council. Now, this is very important to understand. So this line says that what you find in the text of the council, that's not the council. That's like a starting block. Or if you want, the launching place of the rocket. And the rocket is not supposed to stay on the ground. It's supposed to go. It claims that they are the result, so for the text, are the result of compromises in which to reach unanimity, it was found necessary to keep and reconfer many old things that are now pointless. And this is true, you know. That's really what happened at the council. And that's why you have so many ambiguities in the council. In order to have big votes, and also these modern people could never have gone through if they would have said clearly what they wanted. So, in fact, what they did, they made openings in the texts. We have a quote direct from Schillebecks, Dominican Schillebecks, supermodernist, who said, we put as many ambiguities in the text, in the council, as possible, and afterwards, we will draw the consequences. They knew exactly what they did. There were too many conservatives. This conservative would have refused if it would have been too clean, too clear. And so they just put ambiguities. And so now we have Pope Benedict, which is denouncing these people. However, the true spirit way describes, continue to describe this new tendency. The true spirit of the council is not to be found in these compromises, but instead in the impulses towards the new that are contained in the text. You see, that's exactly that. You have words which are ambiguous, and after, well, we will draw from that bad things. These innovations alone were supposed to represent the true spirit of the council. Understand, Bien? This innovation, so the new things, even said in a blurry expression, they suppose were supposed to represent the true spirit of the council. 
and started from and in conformity with them, it would be possible to move ahead. Precisely because the text would only imperfectly reflect the true spirit of the council and his newness, it would be necessary to go courageously beyond the text and make room for the newness in which the council's deepest intention would be expressed, even if it were still vague. In a word, it would be necessary not to follow the text of the council, but its spirit. In this way, obviously, a vast margin was left open for the question on how this spirit would subsequently be defined and room was consequently made for every whim. Look at the situation of the church today. Look at the degree of confusion we are in. Read this text, apply it. We continue. On the one hand, there is an interpretation that I would call hermetic of discontinuity and rapture. It has frequently availed itself of the sympathies of the mass media and also one trend of modern theology. On the other, there is the hermeneutic of reform, of renewal. We go back to one more, once more, in the description given by Pope Benedict of this new, uh, let's say, what he called the hermeneutic of discontinuity. The nature of a council, as such, is therefore basically misunderstood. In this way, it is considered as a sort of constituent that eliminates an old constitution and creates a new one. However, the constituent assembly needs a mandator and then confirmation by the mandator, in other words, the people, the constitution must serve. The fathers had no such mandate. Uh, understand what he says in these, these words, which may be a little bit not easy to understand. He says, these modern people, they wanted to take advantage of the council to make something new. We are there, we are the supreme power, so let's make it new. And if you look, and that will be very interesting because we will see a little bit later on, in the words themselves of Pope Benedict, how he explained that it was necessary to go into newness. But the difference, the difference we'll see in a very interesting fact. At the beginning of the council, the professor Ratzinger of the time is a friend of Karl Rahner. Even towards the end of the council, both together write Gaudium et Spes. They are amongst those who did write this text, Gaudium et Spes, which Pope Benedict still continues to say that it is the key of understanding the council. Okay, at the end of the council, they separate. They are no longer friends. 
Because at that moment, Professor Ratzinger is not yet bishop, understands precisely that. Runner wants to go much further. And the future Pope Benedict does not want that. There is still enough in his heart of Catholicism to say no, Catholic Church must remain the Catholic Church. So let's bring in some novelty, but there is a limit. And Runner and company, they want to go much further. It's impossible and they separate. And about that time, he will found with two others, will be future cardinals, which is the Lubac and von Balthazar. They will found the movement, not exactly movement, the uh, magazine Communio, and which is considered in the church, at least at that moment, like a kind of conservative movement, trying to fight the super modernist. But here you see Pope Benedict says, no, you cannot. You cannot just pretend we have a council and we make everything new. It's not possible. Now that's very, very interesting. Now let's go a little bit further and try to see, so what, how is it going to describe this uh, new, well, not new, well new, this hermeneutic of reform, the one he wants himself. The hermeneutic of discontinuity is countered by the hermeneutic of reform, as it was presented by Pope John XXIII in his speech inaugurating the Council, and later by Pope Paul VI in his discourse of the Council's conclusion on the 7th December 65. Here I shall quite only John XXIII. The Council wishes to transmit the doctrine pure and integral, without any attenuation or distortion. Our duty is not only to guard this precious treasure, as we were concerned only with antiquity, but to dedicate ourselves with an earnest will and without fear to that work which our era demands of us. And you see there, after having said we cannot change anything, he says we need to change something. And we here we are really at the problem of the council. In fact, the church sees that she's losing. She's losing faithful. She sees the world, it's after the war, and people start to consider the church as no longer so important. So the question comes, what do we do? What should we do to give to the faithful, to the Catholic faithful, the answer to this modern world, which is presenting himself as like a kind of paradise. Let's say it's just after the war, so we have a nice big ideas of peace and so on, and um, the religion is no longer considered as very important. And the council is there facing these, these questions. We have to say, to make the, the um, 
how to say, now this time I'm no longer speaking or commenting directly the Pope. I just give some elements from the outside. This council will be the means for the enemies of the church to inoculate poison in the church. And they precisely used this idea of this real problem. The problem was how do we address the modern problem of the modern world? What should the church say to the people? And they took that which is a real question by giving the wrong answer. And the wrong answer was, because the world is changing, we need to adapt to the world. That was the answer which they give. And that's the reason why they say we must change because the world has changed. You see? And that's, once again, it's not exactly what Cardinal Ratzinger will say, but I will bring you what he says. And it's very, I think, very interesting. First, he says, this idea of being faithful to the past and bringing in new things is very difficult. It is clear that this commitment to expressing a specific truth in a new way demands new thinking of this truth and a new a vital relationship with it. You say, are you really sure? It is also clear that new words can only develop if they come from an informed understanding of the truth expressed. And on the other hand, that the reflection on the faith also requires that this faith be lived. In this regard, the program that John Paul II, uh, Pope John XXIII proposed was extremely demanding. That's the words of Pope Benedict. The program fixed by the Pope John XXIII with the Council was extremely demanding. Indeed, just as the synthesis of fidelity and dynamic is demanding. However, wherever the interpretation guided, uh, this interpretation guided implementation of the Council New life developed and new fruit ripened. Forty years after the council, we can show that the positive is far greater and livelier than it appeared to be in the turbulent years around the 68. Today, we see that although the good seed developed slowly, it is nonetheless growing. And our deep gratitude for the, the work done by the council is likewise growing. And you say, where does he see that? In fact, there was something beginning. There was something beginning. It is true. And that is the coming back of tradition. There you see life. Yeah, you see the youth interested. You see the young families. You, lead, you see the faith alive. You do. 
It's true. And we have to thank Pope Benedict for that. Because by opening the Mass and giving this opening to everybody, he did really help this, this, new, this new start, let's say. Don't, don't put all the glory on us. No, no, no. It's very interesting, you know. It, it's, you find it in a note from the Vatican. It is from uh, Ecclesia Dei, 30th of April, 2011. This text is a note about the uh, motu proprio sumorum pontificum, a kind of commentary. And there they say that this motu proprio of the Pope was in the intention of the Pope to be a universal law, which means it was not written just for a little group, because certain people, where well, he writes that just for the Society of St. Pius X, for these people. No, 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 not true. It was for the whole church. And why? What was the intention? It is written in the text. Please read it. It's very, very interesting. It says the intention of the lawgiver, which is the Pope, was to give access to the old liturgy to every Catholic. And then there are applications. They say, so every faithful can go to the old mass. Every priest can celebrate it. More than that, it's not just the mass. It's all the sacraments. The priest can use freely. He's free. He does not need any permission to say the old mass and also to use, to use what we call the ritual, which is a book in which you have all the sacraments, all the sacraments, baptism, penance, even confirmation in certain cases, marriage, all the sacraments, the old way, are put at the disposal of every Catholic priest. He continued to saying, and the bishops, there is also a book for them. It is called the Pontifical. They can freely use it. And the breviary, the daily prayer of the priest. The priest can choose freely the old way, the old breviary. You have all this in this simple note which says all these things. It's clear that Pope Benedict, seeing the disaster in the church, want, would try to, but facing all the opposition of the bishops and so on, try to reintroduce the old liturgy, not just the mass, the whole thing. It's very clear that he wanted that. And I would say he, he managed. He, there, there was fruit. There are fruits. Let's say if the Pope remains really at that, his words are true. But if we aim and look at what is happening in the mainstream, well, we will see. We will continue. But um, I will just describe very, very shortly, not to make it too, too long, in the same, in the same, um, talk of Pope Benedict, he will describe this need 
of the church to adapt. And four times he will use the same phrase. And it's very interesting. What is this phrase? It is this one. It was necessary for the church to give a new definition of the relation between, and then you have four things, between faith and reason, between the Catholic Church and the other religion, between the church and the state, and the fourth one is between the church and Israel, that is, the Jews. It's very interesting to see that Pope Benedict was so, I would say, imbued of that, um, that he says, first of all, the relation between faith and modern science had to be redefined. Understand that the word definition goes very far. Because when you give a definition, you describe the essence of something. And the essence does not change. So why do we need to redefine if the essence does not change? Secondly, it was necessary to give a new definition to the relationship between the church and the modern state. And he explained that would make room impartially for citizens of various religions and ideologies merely assuming responsibility for an orderly and tolerant coexistence. But it did already exist. It was tolerant. The church had already explained that. They say, if you have a country where you have a mix of religions, it is clear that the state for the peace, the order in that state, will have to, so to say, temper and give some rights to each one of these religions so that they can live peacefully. It has always been like that. Nothing new. But nevertheless, they made something new. And this something new is hurting the power, or if you want, the supreme power of God, of our Lord. Why? God, our Lord, is the creator of everything, every being, also of the state. That means the state is obliged to recognize our Lord. Who does receive the power? Leo XIII made an encyclica describing, let's say, counting the modern idea that it is the people who give the power to the governor. And Leo XIII said, no, 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 no. The people in democracy, they elect someone. With this, they design the subject of the power. But the power is given by God. It's not the people who give the power. God is still there, and God's commandments are for everybody. Any state, even a communist state, cannot make laws which go against God's law. If they do so, they cannot bind the conscience. The conscience. If they speak in the name of God and do something right, 
Yes, they can bind our conscience. It is true because they speak in the name of God. But if they want to speak in their name, it's not binding us. Well, we may have some problems with them, of course. <laughs> you can see everywhere the persecution. But it's not binding our conscience. Which means if we say no, we don't disobey, we don't make a sin. On the contrary, you know, a state who, makes, who say abortion is okay, we say no. God says the contrary. So the state cannot make such a law. So if you say no, it's not true, you are not making a sin. Of course you are not. It's very important to understand that. And so in front, say, yes, you have real problems today. But the way to approach them and to say, okay, let's change these things, to change the principles, doesn't work. Simply does not work. It is going to bring in, so to say, other problems which are even major. Major. About this question of relation between the church and the state, you know, it is one of the major problems which preoccupied Pope Benedict, even as, as and before. before. They ha he had a meeting with Archbishop Lefebvre. And Archbishop Lefebvre spoke about this question of the relation between the, the church and the state. And at a certain moment, it was at the time it was in 87, so it was still Cardinal Ratzinger. He said, No, it was wrong. And Archbishop Seth said, But you are accusing 1,500 years of the church. The church has lived with this relation between church and state, and now you'd say it's wrong. And Cardinal Ratzinger reflected, well, stopped a little bit, and he said, It was wrong. So, how could they pretend then that the church is infallible if during 1,500 on a question so important, the church would have been wrong? Now, in his uh, comment here, he will explain why. Why we have to change, why we can change. The argument is, is very uh, clever because he says, the judgment was based on contingency. So what is a contingency? It's something that can change. I'll give you an example. I look outside, I go outside, and see a blue sky. And I say, the sky is blue. Now, why is it contingent? Because 10 minutes later, there is a cloud, and the cloud is not blue. So I have to change my judgment, and I say, the sky is gray. And you see, both truths are true just at the moment when I said them, because this reality changed. This is contingent. It is, does not go down to the essence. And the Pope is justifying now the new definition on the relation of church and state, saying that in the 19th century, the state was very bad. They were very mean against the church. So they persecuted the church. They were really radical. And so the church took a radical position opposite. So they condemned all this. And then he says, but now the church, the state is, is much nicer. And so 
it isn't contingent to see the state that changed. So, so we, we need to be also nicer towards the state. Well, I use my words, but to make you understand what he says, it's really that which he says. And um, I may say, with this, you have a Pope Benedict who really wants the council, wants the changes, but says, but not too far. Not too far. And then, well, you will have Pope Francis. We are not yet to Pope Francis because I want to read you another page of Father, for dear Pope Benedict, which is very, but very interesting. Now the page, if I find it here in my, my things, is this one. As I told you, at the end of his pontificate, so now we are in 2013, it is the 14th of February. He has already declared that he will, he will resign. And after having described his experience of the council, it's very interesting, it's very rich, because you see how he is. It's, it's really him, it's, he's alive. It's very interesting to, to see how he, he was there uh, at the, the, during the council. And toward the end, he will say the following. I would now like to add yet a third point. There was the council of the fathers the real council. But there was also the council of the media. It was almost a council apart. And the world perceived the council through the latter, through the media. Thus, now hear well, the council that reached the people with immediate effect was that of the media, not that of the fathers. The Pope is telling us now that what everybody, Catholics included, have received from the council, himself is denouncing it, at saying, it was a false council. They did not get the real one. Well, we may discuss on, let's say, how can he say that? But what is very interesting, he says that what the people have received of the council was false. And that's very interesting. And I'm not finished, we'll see. While the Council of the Fathers was conducted within the faith, of the Council of the Journalists, naturally, was not conducted within the faith, but within the categories of today's media, namely, apart from faith, with a different hermeneutic, it was a political hermeneutic. For the media, the council was a political, a political struggle, a power struggle between different trends in the church. 
It was obvious that the media would take the side of those who seemed to them more closely allied with their world. Therefore, those who sought the decentralization of the church, think synodal, synodal church, power for the bishops, and then through the expression people of God, power for the people, the laity. You see, you take, you rip away the power of the Pope, you say we have to give it to the bishops, and then you go say, you say we have to give to the priest, and then you say we have to give it to the faithful, to the laity. That's exactly what's happening. And that's exactly what we attack under the name collegiality. And that's what now Pope Benedict is denouncing as wrong. There was this threefold question. The power of the Pope, which was then transferred to the power of the bishops, and the power of all popular sovereignty. Naturally, for them, this was the part to be approved, to be promulgated, to be favored. So too, so that's one point. So collegiality is denounced by Pope Benedict. Let's go to the liturgy. So too, with the liturgy, there was no interest in liturgy as an act of faith, but something where comprehensible things are done, a matter of community activity, something profane. And we know that there was a tendency, not without a certain historical basis, to say sacrality is a pagan thing, perhaps also a thing of the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it matters only that Christ died outside, that is, outside the gates, in the profane world. Sacrality must therefore be abolished, and profanity now spreads to worship. Worship is no longer worship, but a community act with communal participation, participation understood as activity. These translations, trivializations of the idea of the council were virulent in the process of putting the liturgical reform into practice. They were born from a vision of the council detached from its proper key, that of faith. He's denouncing the, the reform. But at a certain point, he's stuck. We, we will come to there. But he says these things went bad because of a false council, the council of the media. The same applies to the question of the scripture. Scripture is a book. It is historical, to be treated historically, and only historically, and so on. We know that this council of the media was accessible to everyone. Therefore, this was the dominant one, the more effective one. And it created so many disasters, so many problems, so many sufferings. Seminaries closed. Convent closed. Banal liturgy. 
and the real council had difficulty establishing itself and taking shape. The virtual council was stronger than the real council. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting. He's denouncing a lot of things which we are denouncing. The difference is we say it's the people in the church who did it. And the Pope says, no, 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 it's not us. We, no, 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 we, we did the right thing. It's the media. It's the media. It's the journalist who did it. I have to read you the last word, the conclusion of this text, because it's really interesting. But the real force of the council was present and slowly but surely established itself more and more and became the true force, which is also the true reform, the true renewal of the church. It seems to me that 50 years after the council, we see that this virtual council is broken, is lost, and now appears the true council with all its spiritual force. Where? Where? Nevertheless, you see, you see someone who is split. He's split between wanted to be faithful, wanted to keep it, and he did that with the liturgy, and wanted the new things at the same time, and he's so he tries, he sees things are wrong and he put the blame. But frankly, who, who wrote the liturgical reform? They were all priests. Who approved it? The Pope. It's not the media. Who wrote the text on collegiality? It belongs to Lumen Gentium. It's the text of the council, the fathers of the council. You cannot just say it's... it's uh, how they say here, it is the application of the council. It's the text themselves who led to that. Once again, I, I said, and I've been accused <laughs> because of that, but I've always said, you can understand the council the Catholic way by about 95%, which means there are a lot of ambiguities, but you can still give in this text a Catholic understanding. But it's not what happened. That's the problem. And for 5%, you have very so a little part of errors which are, so to say, clear enough to say, well, that's wrong. For example, the new definition of the church, which says the church of Christ subsists in the Catholic church. The definition till Pius XII was is the church of Christ is the Catholic Church. Now, it's very interesting. That's only a grammatical problem. In grammar, and I think it's all, all, all languages, you have only one verb which exp expresses clearly the identity, and it is the verb is, esse. It is. Now, one consequence of the identity is that you can interchange the subject and the object. You see, you have the verb in the middle. So the Church of Christ is the Catholic Church. 
With the verb is, you can say the Catholic Church is the Church of Christ. You see, you can, and that's with the verb, verb is, because it expresses the identity of two things. They say they are the same, so you can interchange. You have that only with the verb, the verb is. You can take any other verb, you cannot do it. And so if you say the Church of Christ subsists in the Catholic Church, you cannot say the Catholic Church subsists in the Church of Christ. It does not work. And you can use any kind of other verbs, object and subject, they are no longer fitting together. And interesting enough, Cardinal Casper said that this new definition of the identity, well, of the, of the church, is the fundament of Catholic, um, how do you say that, of Catholic ecumenism. It is thanks to that definition that ecumenism in the church was made possible. As long as you say the Catholic Church well, the, is, the, is the Church of Christ, you cannot have ecumenism because you have only one in one. And it is very interesting that Cardinal Casper would have said that the fundament, what made possible the ecumenism was first you have to change the definition. Um, I would like, I could well, go along, along, but Let's go now to Pope Francis. So, there is a question. It's, um, you can find the text, it's also very, very interesting. You know, Pope Francis, when he's speaking with Jesuits, he drops his guards. So you find him much more, so to say, natural, he, that's, that's, like he is really. So that's very, very interesting. So the question is the following. What signs of spiritual renewal do you see in the church? Do you see any? Are there signs of fresh, new life? Well, new, fresh life. Now listen well to the answer of Pope Francis. It is very difficult to see spiritual renewal using old-fashioned criteria. We need to renew our way of seeing reality, of evaluating it. In other words, no, there are no fruits because I still use my, my, my binoculars there I need to change. Give me, I don't know, maybe red ones, and I will see everything in red. I need to change my view to, of the reality. What does he say? Is there any other way to see to, uh, the reality than the normal way? And if we change our way, does it change the reality? No, it does not change. My, I perceive something, I can change the, the, the so to say, the, the perspective, I may see something a bit 
another, yes, a little bit different, but it's the same thing. And if the same thing say there are no fruits, how can it suddenly see fruits? In the European church, I see more renewal in the spontaneous things that are emerging. Movements, groups, new bishops who remember that there is a council behind them. Because the council that some pastors remember best is that of Trent. Now tell me how many bishops in the world remember the Council of Trent. Nobody. For the modern, the church starts with Vatican II. And here you have the Pope who says, the Pope, they have forgotten, the bishops have forgotten that there is a Council of Vatican II. The only council they remember is, is Trent. What is this? An Argentine bishop told me that he had been asked to administer a diocese. Well, he did that. That had fallen into the hands of these restorers. Oh, no, excuse me. I've jumped, jumped a paragraph. Ooh, sorry. Restorationism. Restorationism. I don't know how to pronounce that. Restorationism has come to gag the council. There are no fruits because the council has been gagged. And it has been gagged by the restorationists. The number of groups of restorers, for example, in the United States, there are many, is significant. And there, an Argentine bishop told me that he had been asked to administer a diocese that had fallen into the hands of these restorers. They had never accepted the council. That's what the Pope says. There are ideas, behaviors, that arise from a restorationism that is basically, that basically did not accept the council. The problem is precisely this. So the problem in the church now why is there a problem in the church? In some context, the council has not yet been accepted. It is also true that it takes a century for the council to take root. We still have 40 years to make it take root. <laughs> that's, that's Pope Francis, not me. Signs of renewal are also the groups that through social or pastoral assistance give a new face to the church. The French are very creative in this regard. Yeah, they are losing everything. They are, let's say, the average now for a parish priest is 10, 20, 30, 40 parishes. That's the way the renewal is happening. It's dead. Do we understand that for whole France, the number of diocesan priests last year was 62. For the whole country, add to this the religious, and you come a little bit around 140 altogether. They have over 90 dioceses 
that means about one-third of the diocese has zero new priests. Calculate that the lasting time of activity of a priest is between, let's say, well, around 25, 30, up to 65. Now they retire at 65, so 35 years. If you don't have even one per year, that means at a certain moment you have only 30 priests in the diocese. And even now you have less. In the Diocese of Lens, the average of parish per priest is one priest for 60 parishes. In the Diocese of Bourges, they have found the trick. They have simply diminished the number of parishes. They went down from 590 to 60. So now almost every parish has a priest. Not even true. Not even true. What is he saying here? Of course, he's blaming the conservative. And he says that's their fault. They don't accept the calendar. That's why there is such a disaster in the church. That's what the Pope is saying. And look at the solution. You were not yet born, but I witnessed in 74 the ordeal of Father Pedro Arupe. He was the general, the superior of the Jesuits, during the 32nd General Congregation. At that time, there was a conservative reaction to block the prophetic voice of Arupe. Today, for us, that general is a saint. And we say, well, yeah, he demolished. He demolished so much the Jesuits that John Paul II removed him. That's the reality. But Pope Francis says he's a saint. He was courageous because he dared to take the step. Arupe was a man of great obedience to the Pope. Great obedience. Paul VI understood that. A Jesuit from the province of Loyola was particularly aggressive towards Father Arupe. He was sent to various places and even to Argentina and always made trouble. He once said to me, so a Jesuit sent by the Vatican or by the Jesuits, I don't know, says to the future Pope Francis, you are someone who understands nothing. <laughs> it's, a, it's a quote. And it's the Pope himself who said it, not me. Why am I tell you this, telling you this story? to make you understand that the post-conciliar period was like. This is happening again, especially with the traditionalists. That is why it is important to save these figures who defend the council and fidelity of the Pope. We must return to Arupe. He is a light from that moment that illuminates us all. He, well, then he speaks of something internal to the, to the, uh, to the Jesuits. Sorry if I went on so long, but I wanted to underline 
the past council and Arupe issues because, once again, I just read, it's a quote, the current problem of the church is precisely the non-acceptance of the council. 60 years of reforms in the name of the council. Everybody has gone. Those, the very few who says there is something wrong, we are labeled as rebels, or disobedience and whatever. Are we really the majority? Is it, can we really say that that's the problem of the, of the, of the there are no fruits, there are no fruits of the council because of this tradition list? It, it really looks like it makes no sense. Well, it makes one. Remember what Pope Benedict said. There are two different interpretations, that is, way to read the Council. What does Pope Francis, he's intelligent, he's not saying something stupid here. What does he mean when he says, the Council is not accepted? He precisely says, this interpretation of the Council, which sees the Council as a launching, a starting point. That's what we refuse. Well, we have enough to refuse on the Council directly, saying, it, Archbishop of Faith signed about 16 of the 18 documents, so he still thought that there was there is a possibility to understand them Catholic the Catholic way. But since this time, it is not the Catholic way which has been brought into the church. Look at the, the mass, the new mass. Even Pope Benedict says, well, uh, that's not that's not Catholic. This new mass is not Catholic. They've taken away what was Catholic in it. They have made it enough mass that it can still be valid, but not enough to be to give us the faith, to give us all that. I use I use a, an image. It is you know these questions are complicated, but we were facing that question in Rome. They say you say you agree that the new mass is is valid. And he say, yes, if it is celebrated correctly, it is valid. So, if it is valid, that means our Lord is present on the altar. Yes. And he is performing his sacrifice. Yes. But that's the sacrifice of redemption. It's identical to the cross. Yes. And our Lord, he's the to solus sanctissimus. He is the holiest. And he's on the altar. Yes. How can you say that this mass is bad? That was the objection from Rome. And it is not a, a simple one. We say it is bad. And why? I had a discussion with Cardinal Castrillon. Cardinal Castrillon told me, you know, Pope John Paul II, myself, we, we, we prefer the new mass. We think it is more apostolic. But it is true, something is failing. 
And we, we need to complement that with the appropriate um, catechesis. Then in front of everybody, that was in private, then in front of all the, the top guys, I said to him, the definition of evil, I say first in Latin, is privatio boni debiti, to be deprived of a good which is due. There is a good which should be there, and it's not there. That's what you call evil. I'll give you an example, an eye. An eye is to see. If you have an eye which does not see, well, everybody says, well, that's not good. Hmm? We, will may, we may not use the word evil, but at least we will say, that's no good. And if we go to the doctor because I have some problem with my sight, it's precisely not good. Deprivation of a due good. And I said to him, yourself, you just said to me that something is failing. So you say that the new mass is no good, is not good. He could not answer. You see, that's the main problem of the mass. They have taken away. They have not made plain heresies. They have just taken away. Monsignor Bonny said it. It is in the Osservato Romano, and 64 already. He said, the prayer should not be an obstacle for anybody. So that is why we are going to take out of the Catholic Mass everything that gives the suspicion of an obstacle to our separate brethren. And they called in six experts, Protestants, to make the new Mass. This new mass is fitting the Protestants. And they said it. It's not us, it's the Protestants. Max Durian said, now the Protestant can take the, the Roman Missal for their Protestant service. Another professor, Protestant, says, <clears throat> now that the idea of the sacrifice has been put into shadow, the Protestant can feel at home. Can feel at home in the Catholic Mass, in the new Mass. The congregation of, the, of Augsburg, that is Lutherans in, in uh, Strasbourg, they invited the Lutherans to take the Roman new Missal for their Protestant ceremony. So it's fitting perfectly for the Protestants, and the Protestants say it. No wonder that the Catholics don't feel at home anymore. <laughs> and you see, well, the media may have influenced that, but it's not the fault of the media. The media just expressed something. Who did it? Who did it? Well. Some people in the church, who for me are enemies of the church, we say, and um, we can take it as a real that Bonini was a Mason, a Freemason. We say he was suddenly, suddenly, poof, demoted and sent to Iran, to Iran, 
as a nuncio. Very surprising, no, no explanation, bang, like this, he was punished. And we know that, let's say, two, two cardinals went to see, it was Paul VI, to tell, to tell him, he's a mason. And Paul VI, because of that, well, you may have read this book, which is uh, Murder in the 33rd Degree. I, I've read the book. It corresponds in many, many things to what I already knew before. So I'd say, well, yeah, it's fitting. It is fitting. And um, what I see now, what is happening now, is like a new wave, you see? At the time the council, the Masons, really managed to bring in quite a number of ideas. And thanks to people inside, they were able to have it there. But there were a lot of conservative, enough to, so to say, make that the texts were confusing, were ambiguous. And now, with the present Pope, we have like a new, a second wave that is, Let's go back to this council, which was like was supposed to be like a start, which has been stopped by these conservative forces. And so now let's launch it. Let's, let's come to a real launch. And that's why you have a pope who says the council is not accepted, because it's nonsense to say the council is not accepted. 60 years of reforms in the name of the council. They have changed everything. There's not one point that remains. They have touched everything. Even the Bible, the canon law, they have changed everything, the liturgy. And now they say the council is not accepted. They say, how can you say that? What is the meaning of the words? And for me, you have there the, the meaning is the council was not conceived as a fixed point, but a point of evolution. Let's go into evolution. Let's change things. God knows up to where. Let's just change. And that's what they have started now. And that's why you have this enormous confusion, because they start to touch things which are absolutely untouchable, like the morals, like directly, directly the faith. The, well, the famous question of the, can we give communion to people who are divorced and live together in a marital way? The church has always, it's clear, it's even our Lord himself, who said, that's adultery. And you cannot give communion to these people. And now, they pretend that you can. Well, you have an enormous contradiction. You have even Episcopal conferences who say, no, you cannot. And you have others who say, you can. So who, who, to whom do I have to go? So they try to go to the Pope, and the Pope does not say anything. <laughs> it's really the situation. And this is just making more and more and more confusion. The poor faithful. Before it was, what do we do? Well, we just look up. Well, the, the boss has spoken, let go. And now, 
You have cardinals who ask the Pope, they give dubias to the Pope, and the Pope does not answer. It was the famous question, precisely on, on this question, the communion. And it just continues like this. And you have a Pope who says, well, the problem is that the council is not accepted. It's, it's really... Um, how far would it go? I would say, as long as the Pope is alive. <laughs> now, what is coming after? What will be the next Pope? Is he going to go the same direction? Or will there already be a reaction? You know, it's very, very difficult to answer that question. We know that Pope Francis wants to prepare his successor. Maybe even to impose it. Well, that's rumors, so what they, well, don't give too much credit to, to rumors, but it's clear that he really wants this line to continue. But what do the cardinals think? I give you one little hint, and it was the first time, it's about now three years ago, the first time that Pope Francis presented in a consistorium, it is the remitting of the cardinals, his plan to reform the Korea. We know that there were more than 50 cardinals who opposed. It was so much of opposition that they were reduced to silence. They were obliged to keep all the cardinals silence on the meeting. They were forbidden to speak about it. And um, so that means not everybody is happy on what is happening in the church, no. But many, they just keep quiet because it's, it's dangerous to open the mouth. And yes, it is an insane situation. You see, I, I fear when I give you such a description to, to discourage you and I would not finish with that. It's impossible. No. No. Because the church is the church of God. And there are certain principles which we must never forget. God is the creator. And he's also the governor. That means there's nothing which escapes his control. God, even if for us, uh, it's a mess, it's a confusion. God is in control. What does it mean, control? It means that nothing happens without his permission. If something evil happens, God must have given the permission, and more than that, he has also given the limit to the evil. Add to this that God knows perfectly these things and he knows that we are in it. He knows that it is dangerous for us. And he does not want us to fall. No, never. God has created us to go to heaven. So he's not the one who is going to put the sticks in our feet to make us fall. No. 
He allows these things to happen, and it is a point of our faith which says that every time we are in a trial, God is offering us the proportionate grace and means we need to succeed, to be winners. Never does God want us to fall. Never. Let's go further. He allows these things because through these things he wants us to grow. He wants us to grow. It's hard. It is true. We have to put ourselves in it. But the whole Holy Scripture is speaking of that. You have St. Paul who is begging God to take away some temptations. And God answers, no way. No. My grace is sufficient. And he continues by saying, the virtue is brought to perfection through tribulation. God wants us to grow in virtue. That's why he allows us to go through tribulation. In other words, in at any moment in our life, but especially when it is hard, we have to turn to God. We have to. And he's there. And he wants us. He's our father. He said, if you ask here on earth for your father something, is he going to give you a stone or a scorpion? And he says, if you on earth, it's so obvious, you give good things to your children, how much more the father, the heavenly father? We really need to nurture our hope. Our trust in God. Let us not be discouraged by this time. It is a hard time, yes. It is a confusing time, yes. That means we must be careful. We must pray more than in other times. Yes, that's true. But we must not give up. And I allow, allow myself to tell you that I see almost every day now incredible intervention of God to help souls. This word, God will never give his back to someone who turns to him and begs for help, is true. Do you know that there is one prayer with the church has put his, in the seal of the infallibility. One prayer, prayer is infallible. It is to ask for our own salvation. This prayer is infallible. And the church has put, so to say, her hand in it. Of course, we need the condition of the prayer, which is faith. Hope, that is trust, humility, and perseverance. So don't pray only one time, but every day 
or every Hail Mary, we, you say something which goes in that direction, pray for us sinners now and the hour of our death. So, it is infallible. God has promised, ask, you shall receive. Ask, ask to the Father in my name. He said that to the apostles. Ask to the Father in my name. He will grant you. So we are not deprived of means. And even if it is tough, God allows it. I will tell you, well, one, one story. But I have really several, which show that God usually uses the normal ways. That is, I don't know, an encounter, someone, you, you Google and you found something there. But if that's not sufficient, he goes to more surprising ways. Some are spectacular. I may have already told you this one, but I will repeat it because it's really spectacular. So you have someone, he's in Denver. He's a parishioner of the cathedral. He belongs also to a group of prayer that pray the rosary every day. He loves Our Lady of Guadalupe. What happens at the altar? He's so scandalized. He's completely in trouble. Where is my church? Our Lady of Guadalupe, where is the church? He's even kicked out of the cathedral because he prays the rosary. Imagine. That's Denver. So... Two years, two years of complete darkness. He does no longer what to do, where to go. He just prays his rosary. That's the only thing he has, Our Lady of Guadalupe. One day, he's driving. He's driving on the, the highway, the expressway, so lanes separate in the middle. And he told me, I verified twice to be sure. He told me, he closed the eyes, not recommended. <laughs> the, time, the time of a very, very short prayer, like something like, show me the way. So something very, very, very small. When he opens the eyes, he's no longer there. He's still driving. He's driving in the other direction, opposite direction, on the other way, the other road. He told me, I was so shocked. I, I took the first exit just, just, just to breathe. And he said, I don't know how, but they were just in front of your church. And there were plenty of cars, but there were one empty spot. He said, I took it. He goes into the church, and there was a mass. Our Lady of Guadalupe, if that's the place where you want me, give me a sign. It was not enough. <laughs> In fact, this was a first mass. And you know that at the, first, at the end of the first mass, the priest gives his blessing, and usually you get your ordi the ordination card. So 
he went, like everybody, so he got the blessing and received a little card. The picture of the little card was Our Lady of Guadalupe. And he stood. He understood also. That's one example. Two years, you pray, you pray, you pray. At the end, well, in between, he had, there, he had met one of our faithful who had spoken to him about us. But no, 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 these people are schismatics and so on. But so God had to take something more shaky to, to, to say, to bring him. And I tell you, that's not only one story I have, but I have to, to be a little bit shorter to be, we come to the end. But I really tell you, there's nobody who asked for his salvation, who asked for the means to be saved. There's not one to whom Jesus will refuse it. Not one. And once again, he is in charge. He is in charge. If he would stop that, he'd just say stop, and it stopped. Like he stopped the, the, the tempest, the storm. If he allows it, we know that it is for the greater good. We have sometimes some pain to understand. We will see that, we may say, later. God knows. He will. He will show. Many saints have seen this crisis. All of them who have seen the crisis see that it ends in an absolutely extraordinary blossoming of the church. So we have no room for despair. No room. But certainly we must encourage ourselves to to this hope, to this trust, really. I may say that's probably one of the reasons why God allows us to go through that, that we really push ourselves in this trust. Turn to him with an enormous, almost, yes, trust. The Blessed Virgin Mary in Fatima, I finish with this, she said to Sister Lucy, after saying, you will have a lot of of pains, of troubles, and so on. She said, I, my immaculate heart shall be your refuge, and I shall bring you to God. So, let's go to her. God bless you.